<clears throat> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I've referenced this storyline in, in recent weeks, and now I want to show you a moment from that storyline that I think really prepares us to hear the text that we will preach through this morning. It's from that series called Better Call Saul, and, and that's a storyline about um, many things, but uh, in this scene, you're going to see a scene between two brothers, Chuck and Jimmy McGill. Chuck is the older, Jimmy's the younger. They're both lawyers. They have a history. We'll just put it that way. And it's gone in both directions. But Jimmy, the younger, we'll just say he knows that he's done his brother wrong on a number of occasions. And in this moment, there's a, an attempt on Jimmy's part to try to reckon with that, to address that, to do something about it. And well, it unfolds in a way that's sort of surprising. Something happened, and it made me think about what went down between you and me. And so I wanted to say, in hindsight, I could have made different choices. Is that so? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's all on me. It's not. But if I had to do it all over again, I would maybe do some things differently. I just thought you should know that. That you have regrets? Yeah. I have regrets. Hmm. <sighs> Why? Because <laughs> you're my brother. There aren't that many of us McGill's left, and uh, I think we should stick together. No. Why have regrets at all? What's the point? What do you mean? Well, look at you. You're in so much pain. Why are you putting yourself through all this? Because I wanted to tell you that you have regrets. And I'm telling you, don't bother. What's the point? You're just going to keep hurting people. That's not true. Jimmy, this is what you do. You hurt people over and over and over, and then there's this show of remorse. It's not a show. I know you don't think it's a show. I don't doubt your emotions are real. But what's the point of all the sad faces and the gnashing of teeth? If you're not going to change your behavior, and you won't, I can why not just skip the whole exercise? In the end, you're going to hurt everyone around you. You can't help it. So stop apologizing and accept it. Embrace it. Frankly, I'd have more respect for you if you did. It's a show. His brother's saying, look, thanks, but no thanks. Stop kidding yourself. Stop trying to kid me. Whatever that was that you just did, Jimmy, you'll do it again. Because that's as far as you get. Regret. Some awareness that something went wrong, and in the moment, it's clear that what Jimmy's out to do has less to do with repairing the relationship than him just sort of placating his own conscience. That storyline of the whole series as I've said to you before, is about many things. I think it's really about what do you do with your regret? 
And in that moment, Jimmy's trying. But in that moment, Jimmy's failing. And that theme of the story, friends, welcome guests, believers in God or not, is the story and the theme of our life. What are you going to do with your regrets? Regrets that we all have. Kids, you already have regrets. You may not even be aware of them. The word there that gets juxtaposed against the word regret is the word change. And a more biblical word for what change means would be the word repentance. If you're not going to repent, then what's the point of going through the exercise of regret? That's, that's the, essentially the, the message of this moment. What is the difference between regret and repentance? That's where we're going. Does anybody feel uncomfortable? Yeah. And the way we're going to unpack that is that we've started a series of late of trying to listen and learn to understand when we say the word Holy Spirit, who are we talking about? What is that? What are, what are they up to? And, and we are out to excavate, and I use that word purposefully, excavate an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. Not so that you and I can walk around with a nice little legal pad list of facts, but so that we might understand God to be not, as I used the analogy last week, not just sort of as a a image on a painting that sort of stares at you and says something to you, but of that image stepping out from the painting and looking you in the eye and relating to you and communicating to you something that no lifeless, voiceless image can. And that spirit has everything to do with you making sure that you do not confuse the difference between regret and repentance. And so we're going to listen to one of the most famous voices speaking of repentance in all of Scripture. In fact, it's the very first time in all of the Bible that you will hear the word spirit and holy in the same phrase. And we're going to consider the nature of repentance under three heads from Psalm 51. One is it an acknowledgement. Secondly, an aspiration. And thirdly, while I have the word action there, as I've thought about it more, I think I'd like to change that to the word attitude. The spirit is involved in the work of repentance, in those three ways, through an acknowledgement, an aspiration, and an attitude. So I'd like you to listen, and let's explore this together, and let's listen from Psalm 51. I wonder if you might stand, and we'll wrestle through this together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin are ever be- is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. If you had your Bibles open and you returned to Psalm 51, you will notice there's a little circumscript there at the top of the psalm. We didn't read that, but it is a reference to either attributing these words to David himself or to one who is doing an homage to what David occurred to him in the wake of something disastrous. This whole psalm is written in response to that moment when the Nathan the priest comes to David and confronts him in his sin. The sin of arrogance that led to taking advantage of another man's wife and committing adultery, of the concealment that he chose to act upon, to try to conceal that what he did, and when his efforts at concealment did not prove to exonerate him or to, to take the heat off of him, he then conspired to send Bathsheba's husband Uriah to the front lines and then orchestrate a situation in which all of his reinforcements would pull back and Uriah would be killed on the field of battle. The one of whom it is said, a man after God's own heart, would be the one who would act in a grievous, heinous, indefensible set of a litany of errors and though his story did not end there, what happens after that, his story was never like it was before. What is to be done in a moment like that? There are plenty who walk on and pretend like nothing happened and harden themselves to their actions. There are others who are so consumed in feeling what they have done that they believe they despair entirely of life Psalm 51 paints a very different picture. I don't know if you call it a middle way, but it's another way, and it's another way in light of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 51, I think, it may be a funny way of putting it, the emotional center of Psalm 51 is what you sang earlier. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. The word there for presence is literally God's face. Sometimes when we'll finish a, we'll finish a, a, a service, we'll, we'll quote number six, and may the, the face of the Lord shine upon you. The idea of his favor, of his reality. This face, don't leave me. In 1 Samuel, 
David's predecessor as king over Israel, Saul, he acts in habitual sin over and over again, and it says of him that God's spirit departed from him. It abandoned him, and his world came out from underneath him. I remember a moment from, from Ken Burns' documentary about FDR when he was diagnosed with polio. And in that moment, in the, in the pain he was feeling in the diagnosis and the horror of feeling what his outcome would be, Ken Burns recalls something that FDR experienced, that he felt like God had left him. He felt like all of his faith had just departed from him for a moment. That's what he feared. The presence of the Lord in its felt absence was horrific. But in that couplet there, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We are on an excavation of the scripture. And there's plenty of debate about whether we're referring to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit, as Christians refer to him, or just as a spirit who is holy. Kodesh Ruach, Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness. Regardless of where you come down on that question, what we're seeing in that moment is the idea of a relationality. More than an idea, more than a principle, a presence. And in the absence of that presence, there is fear and a desperation for return. So the question is this. If the Holy Spirit represents the very presence of God in your life, how is that Spirit involved in the work of repentance in the wake of something that is only becoming marginally you only become marginally aware of what's going on. I think, first of all, the Spirit is involved in a work of you acknowledging something. And there are layers to that acknowledgement. I'll give you three brief layers of that acknowledgement that the Spirit prompts in us. First of all, it's this, that sin is a stain that only mercy can cover. When he says, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, Cleanse me from my sin. It is seeing that what this is is not merely a weakness, not merely a failure of character, not merely a foible, and not merely the product of maybe my past coming to you know, rear its head in my presence, something more. If you take a fountain pen and you leave the cap off and you put it in your front pocket, it is only a matter of time before the fibers of that fabric will be drenched in that ink. It will soak up everything that is in that pen, and you will try every high-tech, state-of-the-art cleanser and scrubber to remove it, and you know if it's ever happened to you, that shirt is changed. You will see the blot no matter how many times you wash it. It's there, and it's not to be removed. It will soak it up. The shirt will never be the same. David's sin and sins is in the background here. But all of ours are. Maybe it will never become the, the, uh, a part of a, of a prayer. But you and I know what it means to commit hateful words. And salacious pursuits. And gossip. And greed. And revenge. You know what it's like to commit something that you know is folly and offensive. And in that moment, you realize 
Those are blots. And you have either the choice of trying to harden yourself against them to try to pretend that they're not important or to be consumed by them. This acknowledgement is neither. But it is, first of all, an awareness that sin is a stain that only mercy can cover. And when the Spirit moves us to that acknowledgement, you know what your natural move is. I know what my natural move is. It's either to deny it, to mitigate it. I wasn't that bad. To rationalize it. I, I, I had to. Or to defend it. Oh, yeah? Well, if you hadn't, it's where we go. It's where I go. It's where you go. The first layer of acknowledgement is to acknowledge that sin is a stain that only mercy can cover. And that leads you to the second layer, that it is more than just a weakness. Again, more than just a failure of the moment. The second layer of acknowledgement is to say that this blot is first of all and ultimately an act against the Lord. It always starts there. At its foundation, it is always first and against God. Now look, let's be very clear here. David is not denying what he did with Bathsheba. He is not denying what he did to Uriah. Later in verse 14, he says, Cleanse me from my blood guiltiness. Malice, murderousness, born of adulterousness. He's not denying that. He's not deflecting that. But he is acknowledging, first of all, that before he did anything to anybody, he first of all did something against the Lord. It had to start there. It is first and foremost an acknowledgement that at the root of my sin is a dissatisfaction with God. I wanted something. You wouldn't give it to me. I took matters into my own hands. And so I did. And whenever that happens, there is nothing creative about it. There is nothing new under the sun. All that moment meant is one more example of, the, of riffing on the theme that comes out of the garden. When you get a whisper in your ear, did God really say you couldn't? And didn't you know that if you did this, you could become like him and you wouldn't need him looking over your shoulder over everything that you did? Didn't you know where do we go? We follow that advice because it's always and first and foremost a dissatisfaction with God and unwillingness to concern ourselves with him or submit to him, and so we do it. And when David acknowledges that, he realizes that there is something more to just a moment of weakness. It's a realization that his move is only doing what comes naturally. In verse 5 and 6, you hear it put really starkly. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Careful, he is not dissing his mother. He is saying, I was born this way. I am living out of the contours of my condition. I didn't have a chance. That's not him 
shifting the blame to something outside of himself, it is finally acknowledging something that is actually within himself. And that the Lord desires the truth to get to our innermost parts, and therefore what sin is, among other things that you might compare it to, it is a self-deception. It is telling oneself that sin works, or that it's better, or that I needed it. I want to show you kind of a moment from a film that we've talked about before. It's called The Big Kahuna. It's about three uh, salesmen that are at um, an opportunity to make a big sale, thus the big kahuna. And uh, one of them is a Christian, and uh, he's been called up to help out with uh, landing this deal. And uh, he's had now two encounters with the potential buyer. And both times, rather than talk about the product that he's been commissioned to sell, he starts talking about Jesus. <laughs> right? And his boss is like, what are you doing? We didn't call you here to be an evangelist for Jesus. We call you here to be an evangelist for a product. And Kevin Spacey is his boss, and his boss is so livid about what he's done both times that he storms out of the room. And once he's gone, the Christian sort of goes off to his other colleague about how Kevin Spacey is the worst, he's got no character, etc., etc. And in a moment of rather great candor, his associate, played by Danny DeVito, has something to say to our Christian. We were talking before about character you were asking me about, character we were speaking of faces. But the question is much deeper than that. The question is, do you have any character at all? And if you want my honest opinion, Bob, you do not. For the simple reason that you don't regret anything yet. You're saying I won't have any character unless I do something I regret? No, Bob. I'm saying you've already done plenty of things to regret. You just don't know what they are. It's when you discover them. When you see the folly in something you've done and you wish that you had it to do over. But you know you can't because it's too late. Till that day. However, you cannot expect to go beyond a certain point. Danny DeVito is being the voice of the Holy Spirit, in a sense. Now let me make sure I'm let's everybody make sure on the same page here. At the very beginning of the service, I, or the sermon, I talked about the difference between regret and repentance. And then you just heard him speak about regret, that you need to realize that you have regret. So let's be clear here. I'm not what he means by regret there is a sense of remorse for the choices that he's made, but also of what it reflects. The things that he is not aware of. The Holy Spirit, through what the words of David here is to say, you don't realize the things that are beneath the surface, the choices that you have made that are indicative of something that is deep within you. And until you go there, I'll tell you what I'll usually do. I'll just try to find reasons in my past that try to explain everything. Well, it's because of, you know, mom and dad were like that. Or I went through these experiences. And look, those things are real. Our past does prompt our present. 
but it doesn't choose our choices for the most part. The layer of acknowledgement is to say that there is something deep and whatever grief we might feel for what we've, in the way we've harmed someone, what we're meant to have is an even deeper grief for what kind of heart that, that, that choice reflects. Now, at some point, you're going like, dude, this is the downer I didn't want today. I thought I came here for encouragement. Chill. You want the Holy Spirit to hold your hand as it takes you into the depths. You want the Holy Spirit's hand. Just be patient. Because the third layer of acknowledgement is that you need to realize that you can't even begin to compensate for the things that you've done. I said sin is a stain that only mercy can cover. When I screw up, I I try to do things around the house. I clean up, you know, I wash the dishes. Oh, how about I mow the lawn three times, you know? Because it's that instinct, like, I've got to fix it. I've got to do all of these things to fix it, and yet, what does that really betray? Another self-deception, that I could do those things, and now everything will be better. Come on! That's why, if you skip ahead to verse 16, that's the natural instinct. He says, look, I don't care if you burn 50 bulls in sacrifice to me. They are not a compensation for something that has to work deeply within you, namely a contrite heart. A real remorse a grief. We try to do everything to fix it. We can't. And when you finally come to the point in which I, 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 I can't fix that on my own, there is nothing I can do to make up for what I've done to you. Grief will. And that is, I will argue with you, as a whole, an act of the Holy Spirit to prompt you. We want to make sure we understand the difference between mere regret and mere repentance. We also want to make sure we Differentiate repentance from, with all due respect to our Roman Catholic friends, the doctrine of penance. That if I do these four things, everything is sort of smoothed over. Here's where we get, that's the longest point, don't worry, the rest of it are not going to be that long. Jimmy has to awaken to the realization that whatever regret he has is about as superficial as it could be. He needs to be led to the depths of where all of that comes from. But the Holy Spirit is not simply one to take you by the hand and lead you to the depths and let you see the full character, kind of like, you know, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future, to see all of those choices. The Holy Spirit is there to lift you not only to the depths, but to bring you up. And that's the second place I think the Spirit is involved in repentance, not only in acknowledgement, but in aspiration. In verse 7, it says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, you know, side note, some of you may sometimes wonder, why is it when we baptize either children or people that are professing faith, why do we, why do, we do the sprinkling thing? Like, what's that about? The hyssop branch would be that which they dipped in water or in blood, and they would sprinkle it on you to demonstrate cleansing and holiness. They would sprinkle it on the altar. They would sprinkle it on the priesthood, because sprinkling was enough. It was enough. Purge me with hyssop is this idea of you being sprinkled clean, of the record made clear. But David is talking about not simply an end of a, of a status. He's talking about forgiveness. It's greater than a status. It's talking about a new relationship. 
It is a renewed sense that God is there and that he is for you and that it's time for us to move on and make progress. He senses that. And that new desire, that new aspiration is for joy. It's not simply that you are glad that you are now in some sense out of the uh, uh, divine doghouse. It is a renewed sense that God is favoring you, that he is there for you, that his influence is upon you. In verse 8, it says this, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. That I belong to you, that you have moved in my world, that you are hiding from something, but not from me. You are hiding from the things that I regret and that I I am now grieving. You are choosing to turn your face away from that. And in that is joy. And if you want to take a little Hebrew anatomy class, when it talks about creating me a clean heart, oh God, we've already sung that, and renew a right spirit within me, what's the heart, what's the spirit? The heart, the things we most deeply love. The spirit, it's almost like our mind. It's the the thoughts that we have. His thoughts become our thoughts. Renew a right spirit within me, If you're familiar with the New Testament, you hear it say, set your mind on things above. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God's thoughts become your thoughts, and then you have a more greater willingness to obey. That is the aspiration that all of this leads to. Joy that wants you to follow in his wisdom, and that's what the Spirit prompts in us. Not just an acknowledgement, but also an aspiration. Where does that all go? Where does it all lead? It leads to a kind of an attitude. An attitude that you hear prefaced by the word in verse 13, then. You've led me to a place of acknowledgement, but you've now carried me to a place that I long for joy in you. Joy of your goodness, joy of your favor, joy of your reality, joy of all the things that you love, that I might love it too. Your thoughts become my thoughts. And then... When that happens, the things that were once a weight begin to be lifted off. And in that new sense of freedom, that new sense of movement, I become a voice for you. I will tell anybody I can about my folly and of how you have moved. And I will be a voice of warning and of wisdom to anybody that might listen. And I will be a voice of praise unto the one who has acted on my behalf for that good. I want to show you a very real moment that gives an analogy. It's not a perfect illustration, but it's a wonderful analogy for that kind of transformation that occurs to someone when they have come through the valley of the shadow of death of their own choosing and now are at a different place in which they now stand upon their own legs. Um, You may know the storyline of Robert Downey Jr. and Mel Gibson. They are friends forever. And as you'll hear in this moment from several years ago, Robert Downey Jr. is going to talk about his own experience with darkness and how Mel Gibson was of help to him. Listen. Actually, I asked Mel to present uh, this award to me for a reason, because when I couldn't get sober, he told me not to give up hope 
and he urged me to find my faith. It didn't have to be his or anyone else's as long as it was rooted in forgiveness. And I couldn't get hired, so he cast me in the lead of a movie that was actually developed for him, and he kept a roof over my head, and he kept food on the table. And most importantly, he said that if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoings, and if I embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, uh, hugging the cactus, he calls it, he said that if I hugged the cactus long enough, I'd become a man of some humility, and that my life would take on a new meaning. And I did, and it worked. Um, all he asked in return was that uh, someday I help the next guy in some small way. He knew darkness. A voice resounded in him that there was a reason for hope, but not until you embrace the cactus, not until you realize that you are simply living out of a nature that you have. It was not simply an error. And that the possibility of being able to venture forth rested significantly, if not exclusively, on the idea that there was forgiveness. Now, he doesn't specify. It's very subtle. Ironically, he's about to do for Mel what Mel did for him in that moment, if you had the time to watch it. But he is there to offer his praise for the idea that there is a forgiveness available to those who would want to come out of the valley of the shadow of death of their own making. I, I use his own voice there to bring us to a point where we say, what, on what basis would he have any confidence that there is a forgiveness? I know we all want to believe that there is a forgiveness available to us, but on what basis besides your own desire for it, can you actually believe that it's there and that it's available and that mercy is there? We read David's words and we ask ourselves, why hmm, Why do you speak so confidently of a mercy? You've seen what happened to Saul. Why would that not also happen to you? Why do you think mercy is on the other end of the story? You may be in David's shoes today. You may have no category for where David is right now. But what is the basis that anybody could have any confidence that there is a forgiveness that would lead you out of that darkness? What David sensed was true of the Lord was in fact proven out by David's greater son. The Lord Jesus made a promise that in him there is forgiveness. And he dies a horrendous death in the moment sensing what he can only appeal to as the abandonment of God. Oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? He went there to purchase us that forgiveness and then he rose from the dead to say he was good for it. That is the basis of any belief that one might have a mercy that leads to forgiveness and a new way. And I commend him to you this day. I pray by the power of the Spirit. Where does this lead us? What do we do with this? 
Only you and God know what are your sins. And if you have chosen to conceal them, I suspect your life is either having to harden yourself against them or is leading you to despair as a result of them. And this psalm and the Holy Spirit says to you, neither of those are true. Whatever your sins may be, the psalm is calling us to repent. But at the same time, it might be calling us to repent for whatever it may be. It is also helping you to realize that repentance is rarely quick and never without reflection. I took an independent study in seminary about a theologian of the 18th century named John, 17th century John Owen. He was an advisor to Oliver Cromwell during the Long Parliament, for those of you that are Brit fans. He wrote a book on the Holy Spirit's this thick. The one thing I remember for that whole seminar is when it comes to forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. You and I may have committed to memory, 1 John 1, 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to commit uh, to... Yeah, that. To cleanse us of all our sin. And what John Owen says to us is this. That is a true statement. Don't run to John, 1 John 1, 8, though, in the wake of your own error. Don't run there. Let the Spirit take you on a little journey about how did we get here? What is going on here? Not to a place of morbid introspection when you are crawling into the fetal position in despair of life or of hope or of God, but in which certain things have to become clearer that I might not fall into that same place in which case I just then end up becoming like Jimmy, apologizing again for something that really isn't an apology. It's just about me and about no one else. The repentance to which we are called is a patient one, and the Spirit will hold our hand in it. But at the same time, it's a call to patience and repentance. It's also a call to repentance, but I, again, listening to the Spirit of Jesus the one who will be honest enough to say to you, this is deep and this is worth the pain. But I am always for you because my love is steadfast and I will not depart from you. And if you are ever not sure of that, consider my scars. The scars stayed. I'm healed. I'm a new kind of body. But the scars are still there that you might know my love didn't change and doesn't. That's the gospel. And the Spirit is about that work. So, before rushing right in to a prayer and a closing hymn, we're going to do that, but we're going to end this sermon believing that there's a Holy Spirit by being quiet for a moment to allow Him to connect, to prompt even and if you want to come up after worship and talk, let us pray, confess, you know, whatever. Don't worry about anybody else. It'll be a chance. And then I'll pray after we're quiet for a moment. And then we'll proceed. That's the Spirit. That's how I believe the Spirit may work. Even in the ancient way of David talking about his own. Let's be quiet and, and then I'll pray.
Father and Son and Holy Spirit. You are holy. There is none like you. You are full of purity and beauty. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. We would ask that you would help us to see what is true of us. Both our depths and our darkness, but also of your great love and dignity that is ours simply because we are made in your image. We know we'll never be able to plumb the fullest depths of all the things that motivate us. But we do know that you mean to free us from the ways that hold us in terror or in anger or in pride or in some noxious cocktail of all three. Would you help us to see a face that is pure and loving, a face that is holy and merciful, a face that means for us to see what does contend with your goodness, but a face that will not ever take its gaze away because of your son. Father, would you do work in each one of us that we might then praise you and see you again and see a life born out for you as full of beauty. In Jesus' name, amen.